You know, when you go through trial, when you go through heartache, um, people can give you comfort, but only the Word of God can give you hope. And uh, the God of the Word. And uh, He is our source. He is everything. Amen? Well, let me ask you if you would to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me just say again how it is always such a blessing to be here, and uh, my wife Amy sends her love. She was up early this morning praying for you, and uh, I told Michael last night, I sat in the room across the street and read through the prayer cards that so many of you prayed for me in coming, and uh, so many of you quoted scripture, and I just, I prayed with you on those cards, and read those passages and said, God, just let that be true in my life. I, I want to reflect Christ in everything I do. And uh, so I, I, as always, am just amazed and honored to be here. Uh, what I want to do this morning as you're leading into this week uh, of refresh, uh, I've said this before to you, but I, I really believe this. This is not just preacher talk. What happens this week will do more to determine what happens during refresh than the men who stand on this platform. Uh, because when God's people begin to cry out to Him, God hears. And, and He wants to move and He wants to work. And uh, I've always said we would be much better preachers with praying people. Uh, asking God to move in a unique way. And what I want to do this morning, tonight I'm going to focus on, on some of the details of prayer and understanding prayer but this morning, I want to talk about the kind of person God hears prayer from. And in a sense, it's one thing for God to decline to answer a prayer. And, and that simply happens. Uh, there are times, Romans says that we, we don't know what we ought to pray sometimes. And we'll talk about that tonight, how God can shape our prayers and change our prayers. And by the way, thank God that He doesn't answer every prayer we pray. If God had answered every prayer I ever prayed the way I prayed it, my life would be a wreck. Uh, and it's one thing for God to decline to answer, to say no, but it's an entirely different thing for God to decline the person who's praying because of the heart that the prayer is coming out of. And so I want to lay the groundwork this morning of, for getting on praying ground for these days ahead. Now, let me give you just a context. First Peter... You have two main themes that are running through this book parallel to each other. The, the overriding theme is dealing with suffering. And Peter was writing to a church who was under persecution through Nero. Nero, if you remember historically, had uh, burned Rome. He had set a fire, many believe, because he loved to build and he wanted to, to wipe out part of the city so he could build, but the fire got out of hand. It wiped out large portions of the city. The people lost their homes, their possessions, their idols. They were angry and upset, so Nero blamed it on the Christians. And so the Christians came under deep persecution for that. And so running through this book is this theme of dealing with suffering and that God's hand is in suffering. That you want to suffer for doing right, not for doing wrong. And, and it's woven all through the book. Now parallel to that theme is, is the theme of relationships and how we interact with each other. Uh, with uh, governmental authorities and with, in our marriage and with bosses and, and, and all those kinds of things. And what happens here in chapter 5 is, in a sense, these two parallel themes intersect. 
And, and Paul, kind of, or Peter rather, kind of brings it all together. So we're going to begin reading here in verse 1. He says, Therefore I exalt the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Now, at this point, Peter's kind of closing off this issue of relationships. He addresses the leaders of the church. And remember, in this time, if you were a leader, you put your life at risk. Because under persecution, who do they come for first? They come for the leaders. And so he's, he's telling them, hey, I witnessed Christ's suffering. You're going to be suffering serve God with a pure heart. And then his last word here in verse 5 is to younger men. He said, be subject to the elders. And, and then in these next phrases, he kind of sums everything up. And he says this, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility. So the summation of, of the issue of all these relationships is this. Peter says, in your interaction with each other, to, in, with governmental, with with your boss, with your family, with your mate. In every relationship, clothe yourselves with humility. Now, sometimes in Scripture, God commands actions. And sometimes in Scripture, God commands attitudes. And the most common attitude that God commands is the attitude of humility. Amen. So he says this, he says, when you interact with each other, in this church body, in your family, that you should clothe yourselves, you should dress up with the attitude of humility in your interaction. Now, it's an interesting phrase there because that term, clothe yourself, comes from the idea of tying a knot. And what it meant was a servant of that day, just like today in a kitchen, would tie an apron around himself as he got ready to serve. So think about the imagery here Peter's picturing, that, that when you interact with each other, before you do that, put the apron of servanthood on. You tie the knot of humility. You, you, that's the attitude that you bring. Now, obviously, Peter probably had in his mind that physical image he had of Jesus girding himself to wash their feet. But we're going to talk in a moment why this is so important, that in every relationship, he said that we are to approach and engage it in humility. Now, there is a verse in Proverbs, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, that I really do not like. And uh, it, it is this, only by pride comes contention. Only through pride, that's the way King James puts it, pride is what produces contention. So anytime there is conflict in a relationship, it is rooted in pride. Do you hear that? It is always rooted in pride. Now, listen, it may be 95% pride on one, part, one person's and 5% on yours. But you know what? You are 100% responsible for your 5%. 
So he says, in every relationship, because listen, God is not as concerned about whether or not you and I are right in an argument or a disagreement as he is that we are reflecting Christ in that process. You see, when I have conflict, I tend to rehearse my rightness, right? And why I'm right and why they're wrong. And, and so he says, in that relationship, listen, don't claim your rights. Don't claim that you're... Now, I understand in the defense of truth, we are to defend truth, but we are to do it in humility. Amen. You see, a man or woman who defends truth Without humility, we'll be fighting for God. A man or woman who defends truth in humility will have God fighting for him. So we are to humble ourselves to put on this apron as we interact with each other because only by pride comes contention. And again, in just a moment, we're going to look at why that's so important. Now, if pride brings contention, what breaks it down? Humility, right? And you know this is true. If you're having conflict with a person, what's it take? It takes one person, the husband, the wife, to say, you know what? I was wrong. And this, I, I shouldn't have spoken that way. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said it in that tone of voice. I was wrong. And, and what instinctively tends to happen, the other person, particularly if they're a believer, will tend to say, you know what? No, I, I shouldn't have done it. So humility breaks down contention. Now, here again is the problem. When we think we're right, we don't want to humble ourselves. Years ago, uh, when I joined Life Action, I was traveling with a man under a man who I'm still friends with. His name is Steve Canfield. And uh, Steve and I were in a church. And, you know, when you go into a place, a lot of times they love you. Sometimes they don't really care for you. And uh, we were meeting with the church staff, and Steve and I entered the room. The church staff was already in there. They had already obviously been talking before we entered. And we sat down and kind of went over some logistic things. And Steve began to ask them, you know, what are you sensing God's doing? You know, in the church, what are your needs? Well, the pastor immediately spoke up, and uh, he began to, to criticize. And he began to criticize our methods. And then he began to kind of pick apart the messages that Steve had preached. And this was early on. I remember kind of thinking he's doing this. Okay, why did you ask us in? You know, and uh, but he kept going. And there's a, there's this fine line where you kind of cross, where you begin implying about a person's motives. And he began to cross that. And then there's a very clear line where he began to judge those motives, and he began to attack Steve's integrity. Now, whatever criticism you might have have had of him I, I lived with Steve and I traveled with him and I watched him with his family and I watched him with his children and he was a man of integrity a man who preached the word and I listened as this man was just attacking I mean just just an amazing way Steve and and he just went on and on and I'm telling you something I was getting mad and I was looking at Steve and looking at him and you know this guy went on and on and he just wore him out and I mean it just questioned his integrity and his motives and everything. And by the time he finished, I was wound up. And I remember thinking, okay, you've had your say. It's his turn now. Let's dance, you know. And uh, I'll never forget, Steve looked at him, and he said, Brother, thank you for caring about my life. 
He said, and thank you for seeing blind spots that I, I may not know are there. And then he said this, he said, is there anything else you see that God can work on in my life? And I'm telling you, when humility entered the room, the conflict just melted. By the end of those meetings, that man had come and asked Steve's forgiveness. And they had developed a bond together. You know, afterwards I asked him, I said, Steve, how in the world did you do that? And he said, I learned it from Dell, who was the founder of our ministry. He said, I watched Dell get attacked in meetings, and he always responded that same way. Is there anything else you see? You see, that's the power of humility. Now, this is why it's so important. Look at the next phrase there in verse 5. He says, clothe yourselves with humility one to another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, let's start with that second phrase there. God gives grace to the humble. Now, that term grace is much broader it, grace obviously is part, beautifully part, of our salvation. We are saved by grace, you know. And, and when you ask somebody, what is grace? Well, God's riches at Christ's expense and unmerited favor. And, 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 and yes, 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 it is. But the, the term grace in the New Testament is, is a broader word. And really it refers to any benevolent work of God in the heart of a person. So anytime God is working in the hearts of his people, it is a grace of God. And his grace will draw us to himself. Paul said that his very ministry to the Gentiles was given by a grace of God. It's not something he decided to do. It's something God worked in him to do. He, he says that, that, that God's provision to us physically is a grace of God. We're told that the Macedonians gave because of a work of grace in their hearts. God did that work. And so when we clothe ourselves with humility, acting with one another, when we humble ourselves, what happens is God's response to that is He pours His grace, His working in our lives, out on us. That's the way God responds to humility, is God blesses it. I've said this before, but... Daniel Simmons and I were talking one year about this issue, and he asked me a question. He said, Mark, what do you think is the primary characteristic that God needs in a man or woman to use them for revival? And I started to think about it, and he stopped me, and he said, let me tell you what I think it is. Humility. Why? Because when we humble ourselves, when we take that mindset, and it's really Philippians chapter 2, considering others better than ourselves, we're told to do, have this mind, this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it was that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. When we humble ourselves, God pours his grace out on us. God works. But look at the first part of the phrase there. For God is opposed to the proud. Now, that word opposed there literally means to array against, to line up in order against. So God pours grace out on humble people, but he lines up 
against the proud. Now, listen to me. This is very important. Peter is not talking to lost people here. He is talking to believers. And when we live, and, and remember the direct context, our relationships. When we carry ourselves in pride in our relationships like that, God arrays, He lines Himself up against us. Now, it doesn't mean that He doesn't love us. Listen, I love my children, but when they are, when they are responding in, in self-love and, and selfishness and pride and arrogance, I'm not going to honor that. I love them enough to deal with it. And so God loves us enough that He takes a stand against it. Years ago, my brother-in-law and I, uh, my wife and his wife and my mother-in-law all went shopping. And so Chris, my brother-in-law and I, uh, his idea, let's take the kids to Chuck E. Cheese. Now, if you work at Chuck E. Cheese, please don't get offended. But it's, it's a kid's casino. Is, and I, I just don't really care for the place. And, and so what happened was, as we pulled into this parking lot, my, we all started to get out. When my, my oldest son at that time was a toddler, and and he needed his diaper changed. So Chris went in with my daughters. They went on in. I took care of John Mark, and I brought him in behind. Well, somewhere in the course of this time in there, uh, my second daughter, who is just a lovely, godly young woman, she just got off a two-year mission stint, but she was a trial. <laughs> I mean, she was our hardest kid. And sometime in this, she threw a fit. And I had to deal with it. So I pick her up, and I'm going to carry her out to the car, and we're going to deal with this, this fit. So I walk up there. Well, here's the thing. When you go in, they, they stamped in that glow-in-the-dark stamp your number, and they stamped that same number on your kids. The problem was Chris had come in with my daughters, so his number was on my daughter, and I had a different number. And so you got to picture this. I walk up there, and I'm carrying this little child that is screaming, saying, no, no, pushing against me. And I put our arms up there, and our numbers don't match. And there's this little diminutive girl, probably 16 years old, working there. And I have to give her credit because she took her job seriously. She looked at me. She said, your numbers don't match. I said, and, you know, I'm trying to rein this child in, and who you would never know was my daughter. And... Uh, I, I explained, I said, I'm sorry, my brother-in-law brought my girls in, and, and I came in behind them with my son, and I, I need to deal with her. And, and this is what she did. She listened to me. She walked out from behind the thing, walked over in front of me, reached out, took the red velvet rope, walked it across, <laughs> locked it in that wobbly waist-high stand, <laughs> took a step back, and struck a pose at me. Now, at this point, there, I guess there's a number of ways I could respond, but I just burst out laughing. <laughs> because here I am, a man my size, and this little 16-year-old girl with a velvet rope on a wobbly stand with a sassy stance thinks she's going to keep me in Chuck E. Cheese. And, and it just tickled me, and I just started laughing, which kind of disoriented her more, you know, because she was standing her ground. Again, I give her credit. She was very serious about what she was doing. But why was I laughing? Because you know what? 
If I wanted out of that place, I was getting out. I was not intimidated by her attempts to resist me. Listen to me. When God resists you, you stop. You progress no more. When God arrays himself against your pride, you stop. You're not going anywhere else. And listen, here, here again is the thing that, that shakes me up when I think about it. You can be right in an argument and still not have the favor of God with you. Because God resists the proud. Because here's the ultimate issue. The issue is not about whether you're right or wrong. The issue is about the glory of God. And God is far more concerned that we're reflecting Christ in our relationships than He is that we're winning an argument, a disagreement. So He says, get dressed up in humility. Because when you do, I will pour grace into your life. And listen, do you think the grace of God being poured into your life affects your prayer life? It absolutely does. Do you think that setting yourself up in pride on your, in your earthly relationships affects your prayer life? Absolutely it does. Because God resists pride. Stiff arms, it holds it at arm's length. So look at verse 6. Verse 5, clothe yourselves in humility, one toward another. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, because that is true in our relationships, therefore, and now he's bringing the bigger context of suffering into this whole thing, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now that phrase, mighty hand of God, is used in the Old Testament two ways. Number one, it's used as the hand of God that delivered the children of Israel. But secondly, in the, in the book of Job, it is used as the hand of God which is sovereign or in control over the trials and sufferings of life. Now, because the context of this book is suffering and because of the verse that's right after it, it tells us that that's what it's referring to. That as you are going through in your relationships, in life, in trials, the trials and sufferings of life, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now, listen... I'm going to say something to you that, that's not going to get me an engagement in certain television ministries. And that's okay. I've never had one anyway. But there are times in life where God is doing this in our life. Now, the purpose is not to crush us. But the purpose is we are under His hand because He wants to teach us to humble ourselves. You see, we spend so much time fighting our circumstances, and, and Ron Dunn said it well, the greatest battles of the Christian life won't be with the devil, they'll be with God. Because we're fighting what's going on. I want you to track with me here. Elizabeth Elliot said this years ago, she said this, she said, there is no such thing as submission without disagreement. Now think about that. There is no such thing as submission without disagreement. Now, what does that mean? Well, if someone over you asks you to do something that you don't disagree with, you want to do anyway, you don't have to submit, right? Because you would do it anyway. 
The, the place submission comes in is when we don't agree with what's being asked of us. And that is why we fight under the hand of God. Because we don't agree with it. We don't think we deserve it. We don't think it should happen this way. God, I had it planned out. That's not the way you were supposed to do it. Your providence, your sovereignty, God, it wasn't supposed to look like that. So what happens is, as God is putting that pressure on, we're fighting it. No! God, that's not the way it's supposed to work. I mean, I've been faithful. They haven't. Why should I have to go through this? And can I tell you, listen to me. Every man or woman who walks with God will tell you that they battle to humble themselves under the hand of God. Brother Tom, who will be here, can tell you for a year and a half he has had to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. Now, a lot of us don't like to hear that. Uh, one of the things I do when I run uh, is I, I usually meditate on Scripture. Uh, sometimes I will pray if there's a specific burden God's carrying on my heart. Sometimes I listen to sermons. And I, I like to listen to a lot of guys. And I began to notice something. And it was interesting, listening to Ron Dunn and Manly Beasley, both of them would say in different ways this. They would be preaching and one of them would say something like, I'm going to say something to you that's going to make you angry. And the other one would, you know, in his preaching would say something along these lines, I'm going to say something to you that's going to blow your mind. And every time I hear it, I'd get all set, okay, good, let's hear it. what is it? You know, and, and then they would say it, and I would go, well, yeah. You know, there were other things that blew my mind, but that wasn't one in particular. But here was the issue, and it tells you something about where we've come as a church. What they would inevitably say is, the cause or the control of my suffering is in God's hands, not in the devil's. And, and I, the reason that in, in, in the era when they were preaching, that was radical. To say that God was in control of that. Well, that's the reality. We humble ourselves because God is in control. Listen, the devil can't control my future. He can't take my life. My days are numbered in God's book. You know what he can do? He can take me when I'm under the hand of God in trials and circumstances, and he can lie to me. And he can say, you don't deserve this. This isn't fair. If God loves you, he wouldn't let it happen. That's what he can do. And, and what will happen is Peter will go on in this passage, and, and he'll address those issues about how to, how to deal with Satan. So what happens is God comes, and, and again, there are times in life that God's hand just, it's down. It's, it's pressing. And, 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 you know, I don't know about you. This is just my personal. They always seem to come in threes. I don't know why that is. But it's like, you know, I, I quit praying, or I quit saying nothing else could happen. <laughs> Have you ever said something like that? There's nothing else could, because there's always something else. I remember a specific time where these things were happening to me, and, and I told Amy, and I shouldn't have said it, I said, if anything else happens, I'm going to just, it's like going to be the straw on the camel's back. There, nothing else can happen. And within 30 minutes, God laid a straw on there. <laughs> Something else happened. And so God's hand is there, but for what purpose? 
to teach us to humble ourselves underneath it. To say, God, I wouldn't choose this, but I receive it. Now listen, some of you are having trouble submitting to what God has brought into your life, and the core issue is you disagree with God. And remember, He is all-wise and all-loving. Now, why does He do this? So that, look what it says, that He may exalt you in the proper time. Now, by the way, the perfect proper time, our times are in His hands, Scripture says. So God brings that pressure and in his time, he does this. And he lifts up. Can I tell you something? In a real sense, revival is God doing this to the church. When she humbles herself under his mighty hand. God will lift you up in his time. And, and let me say this also. The greatest lifting up God ever does is when he calls us home. Now, we, we view that as this. Scripture doesn't view it that way at all. Scripture says the greatest lifting up is that moment where God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and he turns his hand and he lifts us into his presence. That's not a loss, that's a gain. Now, we grieve because... It's natural to grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve as those who have hope because we know they're being pushed up into a greater situation. In, in fact, their whole life has been preparation for that moment. When their days are numbered and they're finished and God brings them home. So he, he, we humble ourselves under his hand. He lifts us up. Now, how, how do you do that? How do you humble Look at the next verse, verse 7. Casting all your cares on Him. Every worry, every concern, every question, you throw it on Him. It's like throwing a saddle on a horse to take it. You cast all your cares on Him. Why? Because here's the bottom line. He cares for you. You will never cast your cares on God if you don't in your heart of hearts believe He cares for you. You will never endure under the hand of God if in your heart of hearts you don't believe He cares for you. Now here's the thing, His love and care won't look like what we think it should. That's why we humble ourselves. Listen, let me tell you something. And, and I don't say this pridefully, but one of the hardest prayers I ever prayed was in the midst of a trial when I was pleading with God to deliver me. And, and I ended up just simply in a place where I said, God, leave me here as long as it takes to do everything you want to do in my life. Now, I can't go into the details of what was happening at that moment in my life, but what I was saying is, God, I want out of this more than I can state, but I would much rather have you do the work you want to do in my life. And my emotions say, get me out, and my faith says, God, 
leave me here. Do everything you want to do. You cast your cares on him, and you do it. Why? Because he cares for you. Now let's bring this down this morning. In the years I've been involved in revival ministry, there are certain issues that we find when God begins to move in a people that immediately he addresses. One of them is forgiveness. If you have a resentment and unforgiveness against a person, God will put his finger on that immediately. One of the others, one of the, if you had to give me a top four or five, this is what I'll tell you. One of the others is reconciliation in relationships. God takes that very seriously. By the way, so seriously that Jesus said, if you are presenting your gift, and the word gift there is a generic term, so it really kind of means anything you're offering to God. If you come to present your gift and you remember that your brother has an offense with you, he said, stop what you're doing. If you're presenting your prayer and you realize your brother has an offense with you, stop what you're doing. Go be reconciled to your brother. And I understand there are rare situations where people will not be reconciled with. But listen, God says you take your responsibility and you deal with it. If it's 5%, you deal with it. If it was an emotional response of pride telling someone off, that's your 5%. You're 100% responsible for it. And let me let you in on a secret here. God usually will not start with the person most needy. He will start with the person most sensitive. So there may be a conflict that you have been in for 30 years. You're the one with the sensitive heart. There may be a conflict that happened on the way to church this morning. You're the one hearing the truth. Someone may have responded to you in, 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 in anger or harshness and you responded back and in your mind you say, well, they deserved it because of what they did. No, you know what? You're still responsible for your portion. And as I prayed through this message, as I, as I prayed, God, what do you want me to share? I want you to hear something. One of the keys for God unlocking what He wants to do in revival is for reconciliation to happen among God's people. For we, us to go to another person and simply, and by the way, you don't ever go to a person and say, well, you did this to me, and I did that, so you were 95% wrong, I was 5, forgive me for my 5%. You don't do that, you know what, that's pride. You go in humility, you know what, the way I spoke to you was wrong. You know what, I have been claiming my rights. I, w w what happened there was wrong. Will you forgive me? Now, in fact, let me ask if you would stand with me. Because this is going to affect profoundly the prayer for the next week. And let me ask you if you would bow your heads. There are two parts to this invitation. This is the first. For some of you, you have been resisting the mighty hand of God. You've been fighting with God about your circumstances, You've been saying, God, I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. I'm trying to serve you. All those things. And you need to bow your head and bow your knee and, and come forward here and just kneel and say, God, I submit. You keep me here as long as you need to accomplish what you need to accomplish. 
Some of you need to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Some of you this morning, there are people in this room that you are in conflict with. They may be sitting right next to you. Young people, it may be your parents that you've rebelled against. I can't imagine a husband or wife that doesn't need to simply say, you know what, what I did, this, this issue was wrong. You know, and by the way, Peter says, men, husbands, love your wives that your prayers be not hindered. Remember, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. Have you been living for yourself, your time, your hobbies, your television, your sports? And may need to just turn to your, your maid and say, you know what, would you forgive me? I have not been loving you the way I need to. So this is what I want you to do. It is quite probable that God is already bringing a face to your mind that you have had conflict on some level with. If that person is in this room, what I want you to do is either turn or go to that person if you know where they are. You can do it in the seat or you, the two of you can come down here together. Ask forgiveness and pray together. Okay, now nobody looking around. If God has spoken to your heart, and you may just need to turn to them. Again, I can't imagine there's not a husband or wife that doesn't have something they need to deal with. A young person doesn't need to go to their parents and ask forgiveness for a rebellious heart. Parents, I wouldn't make them come to me. I'd meet them at least halfway. I know this is a big room and a big crowd, but if you need to do that, I want you right now. People are already responding, already gathering, talking, praying. If you need to do that, I want you to do this right now.